Hi, I'm Mason, pastor of Vision and Preaching here at Resurrection Church. Thanks for tuning in to this teaching from one of our morning worship services. This is not meant in any way to supplant your teaching at your local church, but we hope you find this helpful in your walk with Christ. found in the book of Matthew, the end of chapter 27, beginning in verse 62, it says, the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples Go and steal him away and tell the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who is crucified. He's not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for this day. God, we thank you for what it means. Thank you for making a way when there was no way by sending your one and only son, God, the one who was sent to rescue all of us. God, thank you for not even pardoning him, God, but sending him so that he may die and that he may be resurrected for the sake of all of us. God, we Uh, praise you for this truth. We thank you for what this means about you, what this means about Jesus and his spirit, and what this means for us thousands of years later, living in light of the resurrection. God, we just praise you for this morning. Thank you for um, this body of believers and non-believers alike that you have gathered to, to hear about you, to praise you, God. And we just give you all honor and glory and praise this morning. May you be worshipped rightly here in this church, across the valley, and to the ends of the earth, God. You deserve all worship. You deserve all praise, God, and we give that to you this morning. And I pray that you'll be with us the rest of this morning, God. May we be attentive. May we listen 
um, stir in our hearts. Let us learn more about you. May we see you um, in ways that we never have before. God, for those who have never met you, may this be the morning that they see you for who you are, God, and we know that when that happens, there's nothing we can do to resist that. And so we praise you for, for your son, for, for his life, for his resurrection, God, and we thank you for giving us life for the rest of eternity. And we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning. It's good to see you all out here. My name is Mason. I'm the lead pastor uh, here at Res, and we're really glad you chose to spend your Resurrection Sunday at Resurrection Church. So, Res kids, you guys are dismissed. Uh, ushers, if you can figure out the new setup. Uh, dad's over there coaching Tommy. He don't know, man. Let's go. Man, this is falling apart fast. This is derailing quick. We're really glad you're here. Um, it's, it's Easter Sunday, it's Resurrection Sunday, so that's what's on the forefront of my mind, but I think this is also like our one year in this building. And so how crazy is it that we've, we've doubled in size over the year, and, and just it's been incredible to see what the Lord's done uh, over this past year, uh, to see this vision for uh, planting churches develop throughout West Virginia that comes as a result of reaching people who don't know Christ and God's word going forth. So, uh, man, if you're, if you're new, if this is your first time, uh, we're doing a lot of exciting things. We've uh, purchased the Capitol Theater, and that's why there was only one table. They had to go from here to here, because we got to save every penny we can. So, uh, we hope you'll come and stay and, and get on board with us. Uh, the title of today's sermon is A Tale of Two Stories. A Tale of Two Stories. Uh, let me give you some context. It's over, man. It's over. It's like the part of the movie called the denouement. Uh, there has been some sort of climactic action, right? When a movie or a book or any good story starts, there's sort of an introduction, there's some rising action, and there's sort of this climax where uh, something happens, and then after that climactic action, there's sort of this, uh, what we would call a denouement, this sort of um, tapering off period, this time of sort of tying up loose ends and moving on with the rest of our lives. Well, that's where we are, right, in this Christian story, the story of Jesus. It's over. A wealthy disciple of Jesus named Joseph asks Pilate for his body, and Pilate orders it to be given to him. I think you'll see a sort of twinge of sympathy and perhaps a twinge of, is it twinge or tinge? Tinge. It's Easter, man. Sometimes you just get excited. A twinge. Where did I even get that? I don't know. A tinge of regret, maybe, in Pilate's voice uh, throughout this whole process. Give him the body. Let him go, right? So Joseph takes the body of Christ, and he lays it in his own tomb, a very expensive tomb, no doubt. This is a little side point, but I think it's incredible that he's asking, what can I give Jesus even now that he's dead? I'm certainly not going to turn my back on him if that's what you think. How about this, Joseph probably thought in his mind, that he can have my tomb. I don't have much to give, and even if I had a, well, I, you know, I do have much to give. He's a, he's a rich guy, but Jesus is dead, so it's not going to matter. So all I can really do is say, well, Jesus, I've got this really nice tomb, and, and maybe you can have that tomb. And so he gives him his tomb, but little did he know that from his tomb, the hope of the world would soon rise. I think there's a teaching point here. Whatever you have to give God may not look like much, and indeed it may not be much. It might just be a, an empty tomb, but it becomes much when Jesus shows up. 
But he didn't know that yet, and neither would we. I digress. Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, have watched Joseph prepare the body. They've watched Joseph roll the stone in front of the tomb, perhaps never to be moved again. Credits roll, lights come up, story is over. Or is it? I'll argue today that there are two ways this can go from here. And I think we can trace those two ways all the way back to two groups of people. The first group of people is a couple of fear-filled, joy-filled, shocked women. The second group of people was a couple of guards who cannot believe what they just saw. Whether you know it or not, the story you believe, the story of the guards, well, better said, the conspiracy of the guards, the story of the ladies, whether you know it or not, that story you believe is profoundly impacting the story you live. The story you believe is profoundly impacting the story you live. Let's look in chapter 27 of Matthew, uh, the very end, verses 62 through 66. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, you, you can hear the, uh, the victory and the elation in their voice when they say, while he was still alive. <laughs> you remember what that imposter said, while he was still alive, because we killed him. Remember that? That was awesome, they think. After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, he is risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be even worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. I think he's done with them. I don't know, I might be reading too much in the text, but I think he's just kind of done. You have a guard of soldiers, go and do it yourself. Make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now we are in the middle of a sermon series through the book of Mark, and we've noted that in Mark, the religious leaders are um, Christ's primary opposition. At every turn, they're giving him grief. The religious leaders approach Pilate. Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was alive, after three days, I will rise. How about you order the tomb to be made secure, at least until the third day? Because those disciples, right, they're going to come and they're going to steal his body. Are they scared that Jesus is actually going to rise from the dead? No, it's not even on their radar. What they're more concerned of is squelching this movement of rabble-rousers that's got started on their watch. And so they're thinking, we've really done all we can do. We've ended this. We've killed him. But these people, they might not let it die. And so what we've got to do is make sure that we don't just kill the head of the snake in their thoughts, but we kill the entire snake. And so let's make sure that there is no shadow of a doubt that all of Rome would know that Jesus of Nazareth is dead. But I think if we know our Bibles, if you've read Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and you've read the story of the disciples, we know something that those religious leaders did not know. See, paranoia makes you think things that are not true. Paranoia makes you think everyone hates you when in fact they don't. Paranoia makes you self-centered. And I think that these guys are just paranoid enough that they think the disciples have this master plan when little do they know the disciples, they're in disarray. The disciples are done. They're not going to try to go steal Christ's body. I mean, look at where they are. Their treasurer is the one who turned Jesus in to get this whole week started. And then their ringleader, other than Christ himself, Peter, has in fact denied Christ three times. Do you know this guy? No, I don't know him. 
a little bit later, do you know this guy? No, of course I don't know him. Third guy, man, would you stop asking me about you? I don't know him. I've never seen him. This is the same one who Jesus took up on the mountaintop and saw the glory of Christ. He saw Moses. He saw Elijah. This is the same one. He said, upon this rock I'll build my church. This is the same one who's been entrusted so much. And here he says, I don't know him. I don't know him. So we know... Looking back at the Bible, looking back at the story, understanding the reality of what was going on, that the fear was completely unfounded. But God was setting the stage to bring himself much glory. The disciples are in absolutely no place to keep this thing going. So verses 65 and 66, Pilate commissions them, or he just kind of lets them go. You have a guard of soldiers, go make that tomb as secure as you can, man. Make sure nobody can get in or out. So they sealed the stone and they set a guard. They're afraid of a conspiracy. Little do they know they're about to launch a conspiracy of their own. Chapter 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. How would you like to be the other Mary? <laughs> now Mary Mag- that's kind of how I spent my uh, days at Davidson. My roommate's name was Mason. And he was on the basketball team. I was on the intramural basketball team. <laughs> so people would be like, oh, there's Mason. And uh, Mason, that's right. You guys have the same name. Like, yeah, yeah, we do. Thanks for remembering. <laughs> Matthew 28, 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold... There was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. How's the whole guard, the tomb thing? Working pretty well. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. And here are the words that have refused to stay off the page for the better part of 2,000 years. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. What a moment. What a moment. And remember where the story picks off. Remember the context, right? They have just watched Christ's body prepared. They just watched Joseph uh, prepare his body and wrap him in this linen shroud. They've, they've just watched Joseph seal the, the tomb. And they know that we can't move this, this, um, this rock, this boulder, this giant thing covering the tomb. And so they're on their way to the tomb. And you've got to think that there's this sort of um, sad music playing if you were watching it transpire on a screen. And they're they're going, and they're going to sort of pay their respects and to, to make sure that Christ's body is honored, and they're um, very aware of the fact that he's dead. They're very aware of their grief. They're very aware of their sorrow. And they get there, and an earthquake happens. But the earthquake isn't really the point of the text. The text seems to focus on the angel coming down, and the angel is this radiant being. His appearance is like lightning. His clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards, they just, they're gone. They're out of the picture. They tremble. They've passed out. They become like dead men. And the angel speaks to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you see Jesus who's crucified. He's not here, for he's risen. As he said, come and see the place where he lay. He's not here, he, just like he said, right? A few chapters earlier, Christ said the Son of Man will die, but in three days later, he will rise. Come see for yourself. I almost picture him sort of 
sitting on the rock, you know, maybe his arms are probably crossed, or mine would certainly be. Uh, the, the, the bodies right there, the passed out guards that were supposed to be watching, they're, they're lying there. And I kind of picture Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, right, kind of stepping over him and, and kind of looking around, like walking into the tomb, like, my goodness, he, he really is not here. So they receive a commission, go and tell the disciples that he's risen from the dead. We see a paradigm shift kind of happening. Remember, we've been walking through Mark, and we see over and over Jesus saying, don't tell anybody yet, don't tell anybody yet, don't tell anybody yet, don't tell anybody yet. But now, from here on out, it's going to be, go and tell everybody you know. Go and tell everybody you know. You'll see, go and tell the disciples, go and tell the disciples. And then the great commission that will follow in Matthew 28 is go and tell literally the entire world, all groups of people. With fear, but great joy, they ran to tell the disciples. And then in verses 9 and 10, Christ appears Verse 9, behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Greetings is the word kairete in Greek. It's a really informal greeting. And one commentator said it so succinctly that I just had to steal it. He said, Jesus is with his friends again. Jesus is with his friends again. Kairete, joy to you, peace to you, joy with a you verb ending on it. To you, joy, greetings to you. Jesus is with his friends again. Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they'll see me. Notice their response. I love their response. They literally just fall down on his feet, and they grab his feet, and they worship him, and he doesn't stop them. You know, they, they grab his feet. They're proving that this is no metaphysical experience. This is no spiritual subreality. This is not the transfiguration. This is something that the transfiguration is pointing to. This is an embodied resurrection where Jesus the Christ, mind, body, soul, has come back to life. As they grab his feet, you just can't help but wonder if they see the scars where he was just uh, nailed into that cross. And they realize that this is Jesus. This is the one we followed. This is the one who died. And this is the one who has risen. A second thing I want us to notice about what Jesus says to the women is he says, Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. Jesus hasn't used this language a whole lot throughout the Gospels to this point. There's one instance where he certainly does. And if, it's, um, if you'll recall, Jesus, is, um, his, his family can't find him. And they say, Jesus, your family's looking for you. And he says, these are my brothers and sisters. Right? These are the ones who do my will. They are my brothers and sisters. But other than that, uh, the relationship between Christ and his disciples has been much more uh, rabbi and, and disciple. But the language and the verbiage is sort of changing Go get my brothers. And one of my favorite ways to think about Jesus that sort of uh, bends the, the paradigms of our mind a little bit is considering Jesus as our big brother. Considering Jesus as our big brother who has done something for us that we could never do for ourselves. The resurrection proves that's exactly what happened. That Jesus took the cross when we couldn't take it for ourselves. We weren't qualified, and even if we were qualified, who are we kidding? We wouldn't have been willing. But Jesus was qualified. Jesus was willing. We aren't perfect. 
We don't want to be perfect. That's the problem with our sin. And because we're not perfect, that's why we're not qualified. Jesus, he was perfect. He never did something he shouldn't do. He never uh, was somewhere when he should have been somewhere else. He never had any sins of omission, never forgot to do something, never had any sins of commission, never did the wrong thing. Jesus was perfect in every sense of the word. Being perfect then, he was qualified to be the sacrifice on which sin would be laid. And he died in our place. But even if we were to die and try to die for a particular cause, we would stay dead. But Jesus did not stay dead. Jesus defeated death. Jesus rose again. We could not defeat death. We could not defeat sin. We could not rise again from the dead. But Jesus certainly could. And his resurrection proves that his sacrifice for sin was accepted by God the Father, the righteous judge. He died, and like he said, he's come back to life. His sacrifice has been accepted. The enemy has been defeated, and death is dead. Amen? The resurrection is the capstone of the Passion Week. The resurrection is the cornerstone of human history. Jesus, in so many ways, has embodied the whole story of Israel through his life and through the past week of it. In particular, he has filled the law and the prophets. All that the Old Testament spoke of has pointed to him. Luke's resurrection narrative includes Jesus walking on this road with a couple of guys who are blinded to know who he is. They don't know who he is. And he's walking, and the scriptures say that Beginning with Moses, he began to explain how all the scriptures point to himself. Imagine that. As a teacher of the Bible, I think that is like the best seminary you could ever have. Right? You're walking with Jesus on this seven-mile journey, and you don't know it's Jesus. I don't, none of my professors are Jesus, for the record. Um, you don't know it's Jesus, and you're walking with him, and, and he's just telling you all this stuff about all these things in the Old Testament with which you'd be familiar and you're realizing everything that just happened in Nazareth was related to all of that? I had no idea. This is unbelievable. The scriptures say that did not their hearts burn within them. The resurrection, as Christ would no doubt explain to these two guys, was the central point of God's story. Everything about Christ's life was intentional, and everything about his life was pointing to his death and his resurrection. It's no coincidence, just as one example, that Christ died on the Passover. He is our Passover lamb. He is our spotless sacrifice without blemish, whose blood over us marks us as God's people and makes us clean. As Isaiah prophesied, the punishment that brought us peace was laid on him, our substitutionary sacrifice. But as Isaiah also prophesied, the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. He won't stay dead, and his offspring will be multiplied. Just as he said, the Son of Man must die, and the Son of Man would rise. Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, would rise, the triumphant lion, and it was God's plan the entire time. Verse 11, let's pick back up with our friends at the, at the guard. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. I would have loved to have heard that, by the way. All right, man, so what happened was, <laughs> what happened was we were there by the guard. Uh, there was an earthquake and an angel. And the guy's like, man, I knew I picked the wrong two guys. I knew I picked the wrong two guys. They told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people that his disciples came by night and stole them away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, 
We'll satisfy them and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among Jews to this day. Some 30, 40 years later at the writing of the book. Isn't it funny that the guards were so intent on squelching any conspiracy that here in the end, they find themselves hatching a little conspiracy of their own. Would you picture with me two deviating paths, two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both, right? Be one traveler, long I stood. Not the point. Picture two diverging paths. Picture two diverging stories. You've got the women running towards the disciples in Galilee here. And over here, you've got the guards running back to figure out what in the world is going on. Verses 12 to 14, they assemble with the elders and take counsel and paid off the soldiers. Tell everyone that the disciples came and stole him while we were sleeping. And if the governor hears about this, we're going to keep you guys out of trouble. Verse 15, right, they took the money, they did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So where are the women? Again, they're running to gather the disciples to tell them that Jesus is alive. And where are the power holders? They're scheming in like a smoke-filled back room, this sort of mafia room in Boston you could picture, right, where they're, they're in the back like, okay, this is what's happened. What we're going to do is we're going to pay you, and you guys don't tell anybody else about this, and then if, if this gets to the authorities above us, we'll cover you guys. Don't worry. We'll pay him off too. Um, we got this all squared away. We're going to make sure that this story still doesn't go forth, even though this is certainly not ideal. But picture the power play here. And how subversive it is to the world order. Who's in the position of power? The women. Who really know what's going on? The women. Who are absolutely clueless, sitting in a back room, trying to make sense of everything? These power holders. These religious rulers of the day. I think the point here is that the winners are becoming the losers. And the losers are becoming the winners. And that the first are becoming last. And the last are becoming first. And I think that... After the resurrection, we see this is the kingdom of God. So my question for you, worship team, if you guys would come on up. My question for you is quite simple. Whose story are you buying? Whose story are you buying? Will, will you believe the guards who go and... We have no reason to believe they didn't report accurately what they saw. But when the story gets to their superiors, it's changed and twisted and they're paid off and said, don't talk about this again. Do you believe that Jesus is dead? Do you believe his body's been stolen? Do you believe those willing to pay off eyewitnesses to Christ? Do you believe those guys who just killed Jesus for no reason at all? Do you believe those who have everything to lose in this situation? You might say, well, I don't believe those guys necessarily, but I don't believe that, I don't believe Jesus is alive. That's fanciful. That's a, that's a fairy tale. I would say, well, not to argue with you, but you kind of do believe those guys. Jesus is either dead or he's alive. 
a body's never been produced. And so if you're here and you're a skeptic, I invite you to conversation after the service, throughout the week, whenever. And I want you to just consider, if you've never considered before, perhaps you've gone to church on an Easter Sunday and you've heard the stories and it sounds like, you know, just a fairy tale. I want you to consider that perhaps there is some burden of proof on you as well. If Jesus isn't, isn't resurrected, then what happened? And how do I explain this movement? How do I explain the fact that Christianity has over a billion adherents worldwide, and at the time of Christ's death, the best disciple had turned from God? The other disciple had turned God in, and the rest of them, they were just going to make sure his body had a proper burial. These people didn't have the time, they didn't have the energy, and they didn't have the money to make an elaborate scheme. And if they did, it certainly wouldn't last 2,000 years, cross every ocean on our planet, and eventually go to every tribe and tongue. Are you buying a story concocted in a few minutes? Or are you buying God's story, carefully planned in eternity past? I want you to know that there isn't anything that's neutral. You're in some form or fashion believing one of those two stories that come from those deviating paths of the women and the guards. Our spiritual enemy is, as we sit here, actively trying to get you to question two things. And this is true for the believer and the non-believer. One, can I trust God's word? Can I trust the Bible as an accurate source of information? Secondly, do I believe God loves me? Can I trust God's word and can I trust that God loves me? And if you think back to the garden, he's been at these same wily tricks since the beginning of time. Did God really say not that tree? Did God really say that? Okay, maybe he did. But if he did, you know why he said it, don't you? Because he doesn't want what's best for you. That there's a life out there for you that's, that's better than the one he has. And he knows, right, that if you go and taste of that fruit, that you're going to experience that life that's better. And you can't trust that God loves you. Surely you wouldn't believe that. Church in Christ, the enemy has been defeated, but he's still kind of kicking, so to speak, for a little longer. To extend the metaphor from Genesis 3, right, take a snake, right, the one from the seed of the woman would bruise his head, but he'd bite his heel. Every time I think of that, I picture old Ray. I don't know if I've ever told you the story of old Ray. Old Ray was, lived out in Liberty. He said he went to Penn State. If you grew up in Liberty and went to Penn State, that means you went to the state penitentiary. So he went to the state penitentiary. And one day, I don't remember how old I was, but I was really young. Um, and I was at my grandma's store there in beautiful downtown Liberty, um, Skyline and all that. And uh, a rattlesnake was in the road. And old Ray, with his degree from Penn State, with his cowboy hat on, his boots on, he comes out there, he just looks at the thing, and I'm screaming, I'd be screaming louder now, I'm 25 years old. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's a rattlesnake. Old Ray just comes in, he just kind of looks at it. He takes his spurs, I don't wear spurs on my shoes, but Mike could start, I guess. He looks at it, and he takes his spur and just, just kills that thing right there. And it's, it's kind of weird to watch a snake die because, you know, it's still squirming around. It's still wriggling around, and uh, it looks like it's still alive. And, and in fact, if you were to, like, step on its fang, like, there would still be poison in its fang. 
it'll still hurt you. It'll still kill you. And so I, I kind of picture, if you would, with me, that metaphor of old Ray and his, his cowboy hat and his cowboy boots with his spur on him coming up and sort of just kicking uh, the enemy. And there's sort of blood going everywhere, and it's dying. But in its death, it's trying to bring down as many people with him as possible. And that's kind of where Satan is today. He's dying. He's dead. The death blow has been sent. But he's trying to bring down as many people with him as possible. And he's just asking the same two questions he's always asked because he's not that smart. He says, can you trust God's word, and can you trust that God loves you? Jesus is alive, and this changes everything. Give him your life today. Come to him. His word is true. His love is strong. And if you believe his story, you'll find a whole new meaning for yours. Would you pray with me? Father, there are two uh, groups of people here this morning. There are some who believe the testimony that's been handed down by the women, that's been handed down by the disciples, that's been handed down by church tradition. That Jesus, the Son of God, is alive. That the tomb Joseph gave him was simply borrowed. And that for us, Lord, is the greatest of news because that for us, Lord, tells us that, that you are who you say you are and that we can trust you and that you love us and that your sacrifice for us has been accepted and that because you're alive, we can be alive. And because you have a future, we have a future. And we cling to you in your life and your death and your resurrection. And we say, I don't know what's going to happen to me, but I know where Jesus is. I know he's on his throne and I know he's got me. And that's one group of us today. And then there's another group who says, I, I just don't know. Like, I, I don't know if he's resurrected. I don't know if I can trust this. I don't know if I believe this. And Lord, I pray that there's no apologetic that would answer their, their ultimate question. But I pray that in these moments, your spirit would, would bear down into their hearts and, and open the eyes of their hearts to see that your word is true, that you have no reason to lie, that your plan wasn't concocted in a few minutes, that your plan wasn't by paying people off, but your plan was a display of of power, even to people who would have no power in the courts of their day. Father, I pray that those eyes would see that you have risen, and that because you've risen, you can be trusted, and because you can be trusted, we should trust you. And I pray if that's you, that you would turn from your sin and believe this message that Christ is risen. Christ has come, Christ has died, and Christ is alive. In the name of the risen King we pray.